several years ago, uh, it was mentioned to me, it was brought to my attention to watch the miniseries Band of Brothers. How many of you have ever seen Band of Brothers? Okay, so some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, fascinating miniseries um, that followed, it's a historical drama that followed Easy Company of the 101st Airborne Division uh, in World War II. Uh, Dick Winters, who's from Hershey, who passed away in 2011, was one of the men that was highlighted in this uh, mini-drama. Um, it chronicles their movement from the beaches of Normandy all the way through the European theater through the end of World War II. Uh, fascinating. If you like history, if you like all that kind of stuff, I, I highly recommend it. Um, Nine years later, the same production company that put together Band of Brothers put out a, uh, another miniseries called The Pacific. And The Pacific follows uh, several Marines through their activity in the uh, Pacific theater of World War II from um, Pearl Harbor all the way through the end of the war in Asia. I, I want to say ahead of time... Um, the world would be a much different place today if it weren't for the men and women who have answered the call to defend freedom around the world. I have the utmost respect for their sacrifice. Uh, one of the things I, I, I haven't served, uh, no one in my immediate family have, hasn't served, but as I've gotten to know some of you and as I've gotten to know people that have served our country I'm just greatly encouraged by your sacrifice and your willingness to um, kind of step up in a very difficult time to stand for liberty and freedom. I'm fascinated by learning about just how people go through that process, you know, from citizen to soldier, you know, because it's it's something that just requires everything that you got. This week, I was spending some time learning about how young men and women become Marines. I was thinking through, you know, just some of those experiences, and it, it, it's a fascinating process. Um, every year, 19,000 men and women go through basic training on the East Coast to join the Marine Corps at Paris Island. The reasons for joining vary. But upon the completion of 13 weeks of boot camp, each Marine has acquired intangible skills of leadership, teamwork, and dedication, as well as a career with the Marine Corps. Recruits are greeted as they get off the bus, and, and it's interesting, someone mentioned when they come in on the bus, they have to go with their head down because they, they're not supposed to know the way out. But as they arrive off the bus, they're gr greeted by screaming drill instructors their first day as they are told to get off the bus and stand on the yellow footprints outside. After that, recruits pass through a silver door, which is where they are told they are leaving their lives as civilians behind. And for the next 13 weeks, they take part in weapons and combat training, extensive military history classes, and drill. Their entire training culminates in a final three-day test of navigation, teamwork, and dedication and it's known as the crucible. It's only upon the completion of the crucible that the recruits are officially Marines and are allowed to call their families after weeks of not speaking to them. 
One Marine said of this process, a captain in the Marine Corps, Ryan Gaynor, he says, that's what I love about most concerning the Marine Corps. Everything is earned, never given. That statement kind of got me to think through some things concerning the text of Scripture, where we're going to be this morning, and just some of the thoughts that I I think we need to process in our lives. Earned, never given. That's a standard motto of the Marine Corps. If you've ever seen any of their literature, uh, they usually have it pretty big on the front of it. In fact, I remember seeing... um, you know, those Marine Corps recruit vehicles that they sometimes drive around, they have like vinyl decals all over them. And, you know, the uh, recruiters are living in, a, in, you know, your community. I remember seeing that like labeled on the side of the, the car itself. There's a sense of accomplishment and worth knowing as a Marine that you engaged in intense training and you're rewarded with the title of being called a Marine. Everything is earned, never given. And as I was thinking about that title, can I just say how thankful I am that is not the motto of the Christian? And you think through that. Salvation is not earned. Salvation is freely given. There is nothing we can do, nothing we can strive for. There is no test we can take that we can pass that would cause God to give us something that we can say we've earned. Our text this morning in Romans 10, and I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles, Our text this morning presents to us the simplicity of salvation within the backdrop of the desire that mankind has to make a gift into something earned. I think for many people, and I've spent a lot of time talking to people about the gospel at different points in ministry, uh, if, if someone is trying to figure out who Jesus is and they're asking the questions and we start talking about the gospel, and really from my perspective, the beautiful simplicity of the gospel, there's always that hang up. You mean to tell me, they say, I can receive all of this for nothing. Yeah. You mean that God is that good And that he will love me completely and forever. And he has forgiven all of my sins, past, present, and future. And I don't have to do anything. I don't have to perform. I don't have to go to church every week. I don't have to give my money to God. I don't have to do all those things. I don't have to. I don't have to. I don't have to. Right. You don't. It's a gift. And that's a hard concept for people to... to, process and to comprehend that you receive so much for free. But here's the thing. It's not cheap. It's not free in the sense of we just close our eyes and say, okay, I believe and it's all figured out. As we see in the text this morning, as we're going to talk about over the next several weeks, that decision to believe and receive will change your life 
and turn everything upside down. And you will find that what God provides through the gospel is great purpose for your life. As he reaches into your heart and encourages you and challenges you to live for him. But there is that beauty and simplicity of the gift. In Romans 10, as Paul is contending for the simplicity of salvation, he shows how the Jewish people had turned a relationship with God into a never-ending push to be perfect in everything that they did. They had turned a relationship with God that they had the record of in the Old Testament into following a list of commands and structure, and they added to it so that they can feel confirmed and so that they can be embolstered that they are in a relationship with God. Romans 9-11 through is a doctrinal defense of salvation by faith. As Paul focuses on the relationship that God has with the Jewish people, what he did in the past, what he's presently doing, and what he will do in the future, it is very clear as God takes the church through an understanding of what he's doing with the chosen people of Israel, that it has always been a relationship that has been based on faith. That works have no place in a relationship with God. This group of chapters in Romans 11 is also a gracious reminder that God keeps His promises. Because these people that were so precious to God in the Old Testament that had turned a relationship with Him into a list of do's and don'ts and were rejecting what He had provided through the Messiah, Jesus, He is not giving up on them. He has made promises to them that He will keep. As we looked last time, Paul's primary concern is for the salvation of Israel. Romans 10.1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Paul has a concern. He has a heartfelt concern for for his brethren. Where did that heartfelt concern come from? Well, he was once in the chaos of religion. He was once the hamster on the wheel turning his legs faster and faster trying to keep up and as he found grace and more importantly as grace found him as jesus met him on the road and said saul saul why are you persecuting me and as his life was changed and as he surrendered to jesus he saw the freeing transforming power of the grace of god and he looks at his brethren and he has a great concern for them And he's writing from great personal experience. Salvation is something given. It's never earned. And it's with that thought in our minds that I want us to look at this text in Romans 10. I want to read to you verses 5 through 10. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down. Of who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. 
in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Can we just stop before I get into the text? Isn't that beautifully simple? Like we spend a lot of time, I think, making it harder than it is. It's wonderfully simple what Paul writes here about what it means to be saved. Now, to get us thinking through this process of leaving aside works righteousness to embrace righteousness by faith, Paul takes us back to Moses. And this would be really important because he's making a a statement, a case for God's relationship with Israel and how they are reckoned righteous by faith. And he's proving all along in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that righteousness has always been by faith and not by works. Who else would be better to go to to support that claim than Moses himself? The man that was called by God to lead the nation from Egypt into the promised land. And he wrote, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And as we walk through this passage in Romans 10, we are invited to see some of the things that Moses said about what it means to follow God. And and, and Paul, under apostolic authority, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will give us the opportunity to see how some of those Old Testament passages are applied in the New Testament age through Christ. Because Moses didn't quite understand what all this meant about a Redeemer and a promise to come, and how the, um, the heel of the woman or the baby of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. He wrote it in Genesis, but he didn't understand what it all meant and what it was going to look like. And so Paul gives us an understanding of what it means. And so in verse 5, for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. And so we go back to Moses in Leviticus 18.5. Paul takes us to Leviticus 18.5 to prove to us the futility of trusting in law keeping as a means of salvation. Now, this is what Paul was saying as he's reaching back into the Old Testament. I'm simplifying it for us. If your standard for salvation is keeping all of the rules and following all the lists, then you better be perfect at it. If your standard is your performance or how good you are, you better never mess up. If you're basing your hope your future, everything that you are on gaining approval from God on your goodness, then you must always be good. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. You have to live by that standard. Righteousness based on law 
shall live by that righteousness. Now, many of you know we're huge Steelers fans. Got a few out there, a few good friends out there. No. Um, but Steelers head coach Mike Tomlin is known for Tomlinisms. If you've ever watched any of his post-game uh, press conferences, he comes up with all sorts of word pictures to describe what's going on. It, it's quite, it's funny, but it's quite amazing how he can just talk and these word pictures are coming out of his mouth. One of the things that Mike Tomlin always says when he's asked questions about the Steelers is, the standard is the standard. And people are like, well, what does that mean? Well, the standard is the standard. I think that's very appropriate for Romans 10.5. If that's how you're going to live, that's how you better live. The standard is the standard. Listen, the danger of religion, the danger of making a relationship with God based on what you do and your performance, the danger of that is that there is no room for grace. There's no room. Because when you mess up or trip up or fall, then you think, well, then that's done with. There's no room for it. If you fail in one area, how can you be sure that you can achieve the goal that you are trusting in? James 2.10 says it this way, concerning the impossibility of the standard. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of it all. Could you imagine that? If that was the real standard, let's say you lived 100 years and for 99 and a half years you lived a perfect life. And in that half year you woke up one day and you were getting out of bed and you stubbed your pinky toe, you know, that small little appendage, and you suddenly said a word that you have never said before. That's it. You're toast. The standard is the standard. You cannot grade on a curve when it comes to works righteousness. There's no extra credit. My daughter uh, got a report card this year. My son got one too. But I'm going to focus on... Uh, something I noticed on her report card. She, in English this year, she got 113%. In my mind, that's impossible. <laughs> How can you do 13% more than the highest standard? But it doesn't work that way in the spiritual realm. There are no overachievers But when you think about works righteousness and religion and the danger of it, uh, that's also why religious people are so uptight. Really. They're always watching how they measure up and they're quick to point out when others don't. It's a never-ending game of comparison. Because when they do admit that they have messed up, they're always looking around to find someone that did it worse so they can feel better about the small thing that they did. That's the danger of religion. So can we all just take a moment and realize we are all desperately needy people and that we all do not measure up and it's only by the grace of God 
that any of us can stand as a child of God? I mean, seriously, can we just take a moment and look around? Look around. Please do. Don't look at me. I'm going to hide. Look around. (laughs) Each person that you saw is a person needy of God's grace. Salvation is something given, not earned. If it was, none of us could receive it. So in verses 6 through 7, Paul continues on in leading us in Moses' teaching, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. So there's a a contrast, right? There was works righteousness in verse 5. If you're going to live by that, you better live by that. But in verse 6, we're introduced to righteousness by faith. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now these next verses share in a positive way what Moses taught as he's concerning justification by faith. The second quotation echoes several verses from the Old Testament from the book of Deuteronomy. This is the last book that Moses wrote. Deuteronomy is written as the second law, the second giving. the sec- It's the final charge. It's the swan song of Moses as he's preparing the nation of Israel to reach the promised land and to go in and inhabit it and have God as their God and they will be his people. He instructs them one final time. And the book of Deuteronomy ends with Moses dying. And so we know that someone else picked up the pen from Moses because Moses can't write about his own death. But we see that this is Moses' swan song as he's encouraging the people. In Deuteronomy 9.4, Paul quotes and he says, Do not say in your heart. It's here in Deuteronomy 9.4 that God warned the people of Israel against thinking that God had given them the promised land because of their own doing. Now, they had wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. And there would have been a a thought that would captivate or come over these people to receive the land of milk and honey, the promised land where it's blessed and and, and good for them to live. It would be easy to presume that they are receiving it because they've done something to deserve it. In Deuteronomy 9.4, God says to Israel, Do not say in your heart, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. God squashes self-pride in what He gives. So this is a warning against the very thing Paul senses in the Jewish people of his own day. That they're trying to establish their own righteousness before God by what they do. And the rest of the verses that Paul quotes here, and, and we know these verses because they're, they're kind of written in a way for us to understand that it's an Old Testament quotation. It, it's the lowercase, uppercase letters in your Bible. Anytime you see that the change in the format of the text, that's usually a direct Old Testament quote. And the Old Testament quote is, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss. Paul borrows from Deuteronomy, but this time now he's borrowing from Deuteronomy chapter 30. 
Let me read the whole section that these verses are found in from Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. For this commandment, which I command you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up in heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? Nor, it is, nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. That sounds very close to what we read in Romans 10. But Paul uses Deuteronomy 30 to invite us in to what God was saying about his word and what it means to follow his word. And the emphasis in Deuteronomy is that the law of Moses is a gracious gift from God. Now, if you were under the law, there might be times where you think, how on earth is this a gracious gift? There's 613 commands. But it's a gracious gift because the law was never the end. It was the opportunity to show the people that they need God, that they need His grace, and that God is certainly gracious for forgiving them. The law, as a gracious gift was freely brought down from heaven by God and made accessible to the nation of Israel so that they could have a relationship with Him. That's why when Moses says, who will ascend into heaven? You can't do it. You couldn't climb a ladder tall enough to reach heaven to grab the law and bring it down. Paul's saying that was true of the law of Moses And it's even true, it's more true, and this is where he brings apostolic authority into the interpretation concerning Jesus. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. Paul adds, that is to bring Christ down. The bringing Christ down is a reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The decision that the eternal God the Son of God made to come to the earth. Listen, there were no shepherds. There were no prophets. There were no religious godly people in the Old Testament in the times when Jesus was born that were saying, Jesus, will you come down to us? They were not thinking that way. Jesus on his own initiative left heaven and came to redeem us. The descent into the deep or the abyss that Paul talks about in verse 7, who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, is a reference to the resurrection. Jesus coming back from the dead. Now here's the point in Paul borrowing these verses from Deuteronomy 30 and applying them now when it concerns righteousness by faith. Nothing we've done brought Christ to the earth and nothing we've done brought Christ from the dead. He did it all by his own initiative. Now, if there's anything that we've done, it's that we are failures. We are sinful. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. That is the reason why he came. These are not positive things for why he came. But we had no initiative. We had no ability to cause him to come down 
and to bring him up through the resurrection. Both Christmas and Easter were initiated by God. And it's not a response of human effort or works. Paul's point is clear. There is nothing we can do to receive the righteousness of God. It is something that God has initiated with us because he loves his creation. Verse 8, Paul says, but what does it say? I love it. Paul is saying, so what did Moses say? What did Moses write? What does the law indicate? Well, it's not works righteousness, but again, from Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, we see that all is needed for salvation is given by God. The word is near you in our mouth and in your heart. Everything is there for you. The table is prepared. All you need to do is sit down at the table. Paul uses apostolic authority to apply Deuteronomy 30 to this present context. And Paul defines it or explains it when he says in verse 8 or verse 9, no, sorry, verse 8, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith. It's the word of faith. It's the word that the apostles had been teaching. It's the word that Paul brought through his missionary journeys. It's the word that Paul received. It's the word that Paul defines in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5, that what he received and delivered was what he had received from from the Lord himself, that Jesus Christ came, lived, and died, and was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now just a a quick moment on that phrase, the word of faith. Sometimes it gets misused, mishandled in the church today. I don't know if you've ever heard of word of faith preachers or a word of faith message. Um, It's usually tied into a prophetic utterance. You know, like people are just sitting around and I have a word of faith and they stand up and they start telling someone something that should apply to them in that situation. That's not what Paul is talking about here. The word of faith is clearly defined for us in Romans 10.9 when Paul says this, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the word of faith. That's it. Now you've heard me use these verses if you've been with us long enough from time to time when I share the gospel. Romans 10.9 is the last step in what we call the Romans road. As we walk through the, God, or the letter of, of Romans and, and, and the wages of sin is death and, and that um, the, the free gift of God is life eternal in Christ Jesus our Lord, that we see that Paul will move us through how do we believe? We believe, we come to faith, by confessing with our mouth and believing in our heart two things. These are very important things. So if you haven't been tracking with me for the last five or ten minutes, maybe you drifted off to your picnic later today. It is very important that you hear these two things. Because this is it. 
you miss these two things, there is not enough good you can do to get to heaven. The first, the first thing is that saving faith is rooted in the declaration that Jesus is Lord. It's rooted in the declaration, Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth, this is a really important declaration. It is the acknowledgement not just with what you say, but Jesus said that the mouth is tied into the heart. As the mouth confesses, the heart believes that Jesus is Lord. And you think, sure, I know his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh no. To confess that Jesus is Lord is a game changer. You cannot receive the righteousness of God if you do not believe that Jesus is Lord. You cannot. The title Lord that is used here in Romans 10.9 in the Greek language is the word kurios. It was translated in the Greek Old Testament. They call it the Septuagint. So the, Greek, the Jewish people in the days of Jesus were, were Greek-speaking people. They took the Hebrew Bible as it was originally written and they translated it into the Greek so that it was readable and accessible by the large majority of the Jewish population around the day of Jesus. And every time they use the word kurios in the Greek in the Old Testament, and when I say every time, it's over 6,000 times in the Old Testament, it was to translate the Hebrew word Yahweh. To confess Jesus is Lord is to confess that Jesus is God. Jesus isn't your buddy, a moral student, or a teacher. He isn't just a good friend. He isn't just someone that performs signs and wonders. He isn't just a good speaker. He is God. Salvation is based on the confession. Now, Our church doesn't explicitly do this a lot, but there are large pockets of the church today that reach back thousands of years to the days of the early church that are confessional churches. A confessional church, a confessional Christian, is a a person that agrees with. The word confession itself means to agree with someone. The church today... The true church is a confessional church that agrees that Jesus is Lord. It means to agree with the fact that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the sovereign one. He is the one who is king of your heart. Now, some of you will know, some of you will know this, and maybe some I have piqued your interest and you'll spend the rest of your day, you'll say, hey, we're not going to the picnic. I want to search down this rabbit hole of this whole thing. But around 30 years ago, there was a, a, a debate that wasn't always nice and gracious within the church concerning what I'm talking about here. And what I'm talking about here is to confess that Jesus is Lord, some would say, well, that means you're adding works to salvation. 
It all, ter- it all focused around this term, lordship salvation. Must Christ be Lord for you to be saved? And there, there were two opposing evangelical viewpoints. Like, we're talking about people in our own camp that disagreed with each other. And they weren't always gracious with each other. And there were books written and conferences had and churches split over this whole controversy. The one camp said that we don't have to make Jesus as Lord because if we make Jesus Lord, that is a work that we do. And it was all tied into the idea of where does repentance fit into the salvation message? And they, th- they believe and they were firmly rooted in the fact that we are saved by grace through faith. And if we add anything to it, that is a work that we do. And so we want to avoid terms and terminology that says Jesus must be Lord. And then the other camp came out and said, well, how can you be a Christian if Jesus is not Lord of your life and that you are turning your heart towards him and away from your old lifestyle? And they were going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And you're thinking, what's the point? Well, the point is this. First and always, we are saved by grace through faith. Let's always remember that. The same apostle that wrote Romans 10, 9, wrote Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We are saved by grace through faith. It's not a work. But Paul clearly says that you must confess Jesus is Lord. He must be king of your life. When Jesus said at the end of the day, when people will approach him and say, Lord, Lord, I knew you. And he said, depart from me for I never knew you. I think that's some of what he's talking about. You can say that you know Jesus, but you know how you know Jesus? How are you living? Where are your affections? What do you pursue? Where are you focusing? Has Jesus truly made a difference in your life? Or is this something where you've said, well, when I was 40 years ago, I made a one-time profession of faith at a camp, and now I'm changed once and forever, but I've never been to church, I've never been discipled, I've never grown, there's been no fruit, all those things. Listen, if Jesus is going to leave heaven to come and take your place on the cross, Don't you think it's important for him that you live for him now? And the scriptures, verse after verse, we, in fact, we went through this in Romans 7 very specifically. God is commending to us that as a result of our confession that Jesus is Lord of our life, that our lives will be different. And the goal of God's heart in our salvation is to conform us into the image of Christ. That's where Romans eight twenty-eight through 30 took us. It is critically important as the people of God that we understand that God wants to change us from the inside out into the image of his son. And so I think both camps sometimes in, in shooting their 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 shots at each other, are are missing the bigger point. Salvation is never a work that we can do. I believe that as God works and speaks into our heart, and we've been talking through the doctrine of regeneration, that God puts inside of us the ability to be no longer dead in our trespasses and sin. We know that the unspiritual man cannot appraise the spiritual things of God. And as God works to regenerate the heart, 
one and the same thing, at the same time, our heart responds to the gospel and God gives us faith. And in that faith, we acknowledge as we are trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and King of our lives, that we are turning away from our old self. There's a lot going on when a person says, I I believe in Jesus. We need to understand that. And we've been looking at that, right? Romans 9, Romans 10. Romans 9 from God's side of salvation. Romans 10, our side of salvation. What does Paul say? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is Lord. Everyone who has trusted in Jesus Christ and has had his righteousness applied to their account will live that confession and produce fruit for him. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, if you abide in him, you will produce fruit. Your life will look different. Now, let me just be very clear. And all these things that we talked about, because the danger is to say, oh, let's look at my performance to show that I'm saved you're not going to be perfect. And that's where God's grace comes in to forgive, to restore, and to pick you up to help you to keep going. Your life is going to look different. God is going to sanctify you. He who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. The second aspect of saving faith is the belief, faith, that God raised Jesus from the dead. This is the belief that not only did Jesus die on the cross, which is critically important, that's where the atonement was made, that is where the satisfaction for the, the wrath of God was appeased, that's where our sins were paid for. That is really important, but also that the Savior is not dead. He is alive. And who raised him from the dead? The Father. God raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus was the supreme declaration from the Father that all Jesus did on the cross was sufficient to save us from our sins. Now, Jesus alluded to this in John chapter 2 when he was talking to the Jews that were gathering and they they were questioning about the temple. And Jesus said, listen, you can tear down this temple and three days later it will rise up again. And John, as the apostle who was there witnessing these words at the time, didn't understand it, but after the fact wrote as a statement of truth that this was written in regards to his body. Jesus was raised three days later. Both of these areas, confessing Jesus as Lord And that God raised him from the dead consists of the whole truth of Jesus. His person, that he is Lord, and his work, that he was raised from the dead. If you confess and believe in the person and work of Jesus, you will be saved. Now, saved is a term we use a lot in the church, but we need to remember that being saved means that you are rescued from sin's penalty and punishment. If you are not saved, you are dead in your sins and trespasses. And the wrath of God will be poured out onto your life as you are separated from God 
forever. Hell is not a place that we use in jokes. It is where we'll kind of hang out with our buddies and have a lot of fun. Hell is an eternal place of torment, of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It is a place that even as you read about it, you desperately know that you don't want to be there. And so God, by His grace, sent His Son to die on the cross for your sin. He was buried and rose again three days later. That if you believe in what Jesus accomplished on the cross for your sin, and you rightly appropriate your heart to Him, you will be saved. Now to help us understand this, in verse 10, Paul says, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. It's a restating of verse 9. Paul is reiterating that confessing with the mouth and believing in the heart are not separate actions. It's not like step one and then step two. It's step one, all of it. You confess and believe. You confess and believe. As you confess, this is what happens. As you believe, this is what happens. It results in salvation. There are two sides of the same coin, confessing and believing. Confessing and believing mean to profess faith in Christ. It's a public profession. It's an acknowledgement. You're not hiding in the closet saying, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to tell anyone because I'm afraid of what it might mean for me. It's a, a, a statement that you're making that you belong to the king and the king is in your heart. Doing both results in righteousness. Oh, right, righteousness. The thing that everyone's been pursuing. The Jews were pursuing by following the law. And the fallen world today, they pursue it in all sorts of ways. Whether in doing more good than bad or, or trying to be nice or, or they just kind of come up with their own plan for righteousness. The problem is all counterfeit plans for righteousness end in judgment. There is only one path for a person to receive the true righteousness of God, and that is through Jesus Christ, His Son. Now, as I close, my question to you is this. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That Jesus is Lord, that He is God Himself, and that God raised him from the dead. He is not dead. He's alive. Where is your hope this morning? On an endless pursuit of gaining God's favor by what you do? Or trusting in the gift of what Jesus has already done for you? If you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. There's assurance in that verse. Romans 10.9 is assurance. It's comfort. It's security. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. If you walked in the church this morning unsure about where you will spend eternity, you can leave here certain that you are saved from sin's penalty and punishment if you confess and believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Remember, Salvation is always something given. It is never earned. Let's pray.